I'm Beatrice Collier. And I'm Georgina Wolfe. And this is the Pupillage Podcast, brought to you by Middle Temple and us, your hosts. Have you had an accident that wasn't your fault? You may have been deterred from considering personal injury and its cousin, clinical negligence, by the reputation for ambulance chasing. But today's practitioners tell a very different story. Farah Moladad and Jared McDermott QC tell us about working in the field of healthcare, from dealing with the most serious, gory or heartbreaking cases, the challenges of professional discipline, and explain why PI, as it's known, is one of the most important areas of practice out there. Farah Moladad was called to the bar in 1999 and practices at Crown Office Row Chambers. Her specialisms are clinical negligence, personal injury and professional discipline. Farah, were these always your chosen areas of practice? Um, I think my chosen area was really clinical negligence, which I sort of started out with, and then uh, hand-in-hand personal injury, and then a bit later on, professional discipline came into it. Why did you pick clinical negligence? Why did that attract you in the first place? I was looking for areas at the bar which didn't involve sort of dry law only, so I thought that if there's medicine involved, then that's quite interesting, Um, and so that's why I looked at clinical negligence. Then in terms of the disputes that you deal with can you give our listeners an idea I don't know if it's possible to give an idea of a a typical clinical negligence dispute but yeah I mean a typical clinical negligence dispute will usually involve somebody who's been treated at an NHS hospital and something's gone wrong so um they go and see a lawyer about it and effectively what they thought might have gone wrong may not have gone wrong and something else has gone wrong so they've (laughs) You know, they've, they've been operated on their leg and they think that our operation was carried out incorrectly. But in fact, um, it, it may be that they've been given the wrong anaesthetic or something like that. And that involves factual disputes sometimes. Uh, more often than not, it's actually a dispute between uh, doctors as to whether what was done or not done was reasonable. And then ultimately it ends up in a dispute in uh, how much compensation that person ought to be awarded. So the clients in a clinical negligence dispute will be individuals who are the the sort of the the claimants. Yes. And then NHS trusts or individual doctors? Yes, so the defendants are usually NHS trusts because any act done by a doctor while you're in an NHS hospital uh, is covered by that trust. Uh, Sometimes uh, they're GPs who are represented separately. Uh, and now, actually, more often, I'm seeing private surgeons as defendants. And is it like in crime, where you often have a big division between defending and prosecuting, or do clinical negligence practitioners tend to both work on both claimant and defendant sides? I, I think in clinical negligence, you do tend to work both on claimant and defendant. And As you become more senior, I suspect you probably do more of one than the other. But I've made a conscious effort actually to continue um, with claimant work because I do a lot of defendant work just to give you a sense of perspective and balance. Yeah, I think it's really good for your your practice. Definitely, definitely. Certainly something that I find about trying to do claimant work as well as defendant work is that it helps you retain flexibility and creativity because you need to 
create the case rather than respond to the one it, it, that is exactly. being made. And actually also um, when you're acting for a claimant, it just reminds you when you're acting for a defendant that actually even though you're instructed by the defendant and you're defending the case, I mean we're all independent practitioners at the bar, but you know you can, there's, there's an, you can deal very empathetically with a claimant because that's the thing about clinical negligence cases uh, when you're cross-examining a claimant who's been to a hospital who's either baby's brain damaged or is dead or who themselves were fine before they went into hospital and now are tetraplegic because the uh, epidural was put in the wrong place so it gives you a real sense of uh, uh, you know how to deal if you're on the other side with somebody who's injured to that degree um, and that's what that, that's how judges deal with it effectively and if you're dealing with it in a way that's not empathetic and or aggressive or just too robust then I don't think you're doing yourself, your client or anyone any favours. Perhaps you should explain for the benefit of our, our listeners who won't be familiar necessarily with the disciplinary work, what, what is that side of your practice entail? So that side, it's, you know, it's officially called professional discipline and what effectively it is, is, hand, is uh, for, for my part, um, representing either doctors or psychologists or psychotherapists or osteopaths, so re- representing practitioners in front of their professional bodies. So if an individual makes a complaint against you uh, to your professional body uh, and that goes ahead there are various stages but it ultimately culminates in an oral hearing uh, and, and and that would be that's where I would come in to do the oral hearing on behalf of the practitioner and so will that be so before the GMC the general medical council exactly mm-hmm. so doctors are and psychiatrists for example are in front of the general medical council psychologists are the healthcare and professions council uh, osteopaths for example are the general osteopathic council nurses nursing and midwifery council and you know sort of the list is endless does the oral hearing take the form of a trial does that include or I mean, as in, is it similar in the sense that there are witnesses to be cross-examined yes. and submissions made? Yes, and it's effectively an adversarial pr- process, and it's al- al- almost similar to a, a criminal trial, actually, because uh, you know the uh, uh, it's prosecuted effectively, um, uh, but heard by an independent panel. So it's prosecuted by the GMC, for example, heard by an independent panel, and then there's a defence. So there must be a considerable overlap between what you see in clinical negligence cases and what you see in personal injury cases. In both of those, you've got somebody who's been physically injured. It's just the cause is somewhat different. It's not a um, in personal injury. It wouldn't be in the clinical setting necessarily. It would be definitely, because they'd had an accident definitely. at work or something else. And, and then obviously in a personal injury context, you're in... Uh, instruction, for example, may not come from uh, the NHS resolution, who effectively the insurers for the NHS hospitals, but they come from insurers and private insurers who probably might want you to take a bit more of a robust approach than you would be expected to take if you're acting on behalf of the NHS. Um, but most of my personal injury work actually now is specialised either into catastrophic or stress at work claims, um, which obviously involve psychological injury, which is quite different to physical injury, but just as serious actually. Oh, you mentioned earlier that quite often your disputes in the end come down to a dispute between different clinicians as to whether what was performed was reasonable. Yes. Um, does, are you referring there to expert witnesses? Then? Yes, yes. So um, that's definitely expert evidence. So factual witnesses sometimes overlap a little bit because effectively you'll have to call your doctor to give evidence. So does this mean that in order to flourish in your area of practice, you need to be 
reasonably adept at understanding the, the the sort of medical language and understanding medical procedures. Yeah, I think I I, I don't think because a lot of people ask me actually if I've got any medical background, which I don't, and there are a lot of people who practice clinical negligence who do have medical backgrounds. So I don't think you need to. Ha- you definitely need to be able to understand it. But actually, that's the benefit of having an expert. And I'm never embarrassed, even after twenty years, to say to my expert, actually, I know nothing. You know, expl- really explain to me in simple terms, like you'd explain to the judge eventually, what you're talking about. And then obviously once with the help of your expert, um, you get to understand that area. What then does your professional life look like, if it's possible to say, over the period of, I don't know, let's say a quarter of a year, three or four months? So, um, busy, very busy. Um, and, you know, especially if you've had trials. So I've had four trials in the first quarter of this year, for example, you know, two back to back. So it's incredibly busy, but but manageable in the sense that if you plan it uh then actually you can work around it so you know i i've been coming in you know eight eight, nine o'clock in the morning leaving at six but if if i have work to do i i'll do it in the evening um and obviously during the trial it's it's very busy but then when i've stopped the trials and i've got a bit of space then you know um less busy more paperwork in chambers uh, but but always, I, I think, manageable, because I think the whole, actually, the whole working at the bar, except when you're in trial, where you obviously um, are working incredibly hard, is, is completely manageable if you plan it. So it's about being well-organised and disciplined with yourself and yes. with your clerks? Yes. And also giving people notice. So, you know, you say to your clerks or your clients, um, you know, I'm on holiday for July, so anything that comes in... You know, see, at the end of June, I probably won't be able to do so. My clerks are constantly aware of my diary the whole year, uh, as are my clients, actually. So they often say in advance, if I send you this in six weeks, and I say, well, that's fine, I'll just mark it out in my diary. Obviously, you get lots of things last minute, and and it wasn't always like this. In the beginning of your career, you just have to do it, because that's how you build your practice. You said that you've you've had three trials this year. Would you describe your practice as being um evenly balanced between court work and paperwork or do you tend to do more court work so i think i probably tend to do more court work uh and you just develop a reputation as you go through the bar and i i generally get instructed on cases that people know are definitely going to go to court yeah so um you know most things unless you know there's, there's been a breach of duty and you have no hope of winning um i i, I tend to take to, to trial the, my disciplinary cases of course always go to court because effectively and, and unless the doctor accepts they've done something wrong uh, generally uh, you know you're going to have a hearing that it's not a matter of compensation so what are the things that you particularly enjoy about your practice areas uh court work which i do a lot of um i enjoy sort of the variety in the sense that you do get i mean obviously you, you get similar areas of mistakes and clinical negligence but but generally no case is ever the same which i really enjoy uh and um i you know i i just enjoy actually the the challenges it gives you because there's legal challenges but you know there's it, it, it's it's all it's all rounder you know you're dealing generally with doctors clinicians you know claimants different people different days so uh, even though i'm in a specialized area my practice actually is is very varied one day i was representing a defendant trust who overprescribed a drug to a lady who died and then the next week I was representing a doctor who was alleged to have had a sexual relationship with a patient so it's so very very different 
What are the things that you think that those considering a career in your area should think about carefully before they take the plunge? So I think the first thing is that um, it's it's probably not for the weak-hearted, you know, because when you're dealing with clinical negligence in, in two aspects, one, you know, they are quite har- some of them are really harrowing cases, and if you're just not if you don't have the constitution to deal with that, either for the claimant or for the defendant, and in some ways it's probably harder to act for the claimant because there's such pressure on you if you lose a case, you know. Um, so, so that's the first thing. And then obviously somebody who's not interested in medicine or blood or gory details, which again come out in trial, is probably not going to do very, very well. And thirdly, I think it's, um, you know, if you're not an attention to detail person, then this is, this is not the area for you. So if somebody's listening to this thinking, this sounds really great and I want to sign up, what sort of work experience would you recommend they do? Um, apart from the usual, obviously, many privileges and, 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 and experience in a solicitor's office, I think that actually working in a hospital is, is, is quite a good idea uh, to see what it's like on the ground, either in a ward, if you're allowed, or actually in a in, in the legal office in, in, in the hospital or, or anywhere where you can get exposure. I also think sort of working, if you're looking at professional discipline, I've met quite a few people who've actually done six months in various disciplinary uh, bodies, so the GMC or the HCPC. Uh, one was in a gap year doing doing that, uh, and then finally, obviously, anything that will get you exposure um, to 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 medical matters. So, I mean, you could be working in a pharmaceutical company just doing an internship or something, and though that's not directly relevant, it does give you some sort of insight into what's happening in that world, and and sort of goes quite well because a lot of people in my chambers do product liability on medical products so for example if that's something you eventually want to do that would give you a very nice introduction into it you pointed out that this can be an incredibly stressful high pressure and traumatic area of work yes sounds to me that it, it, it would be critical for people if they're thinking about work experience to actually be able to have some real insight into what that means exactly so actually if you're in a hospital working just just for example, just in, and, and the NHS are, are completely underfunded now, so you often find trust legal offices don't have enough. And I can't, I'm sure they would be more than happy to accept people on work experience to, to sort of deal with this. And actually, another thing you might consider doing is working in an, uh, a coroner's office. Yes. Because actually coroner's courts are where I got a lot of my initial experience in cross-examining medical experts, etc. And I acted actually a lot for families when I started out. Uh, and, and, and you do actually see some of the worst things there because obviously ultimately the person there is dead. So uh, working in a coroner's court for a little while might be quite a good introduction as well, I think. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Do you think that you need any additional qualifications to practice these areas? Or no, I, I, I definitely don't think. No, I don't think you need any. I mean, if you if you I mean if you happen to be a doctor who's moving, uh, you know that would obviously be beneficial. Though some people tell me actually it's quite hard for doctors to put aside their own personal opinion on on, on yes. what should have been done. So I know a few doctors, uh, but no, I don't think you need any other qualifications. What about earnings? Can we can we talk about money? For people who have a let's let's stick with clinical negligence. Yes. 
for junior practitioners, what might they expect by way of earnings in, let's say, up to the first five years? So, I mean, in my chambers, for example, which does clinical negligence, I think the people are awarded something like £70,000 or something. So that's a good starting point for, for, for anyone. And it depends what sort of work you do. I mean, I have to confess that the NHS work by itself is not highly paid, though it's very interesting. But if you're acting for claimants, it's very well paid. Uh, and, and I think it, in, within the first five years, you know, you could easily expect to earn 200000 uh, if you're doing a combination of clinical negligence and some other, you know, common law work. And it sounds as though these, you, you've talked about clinical negligence, personal injury and professional discipline. Yes. Those areas intersect very, very well. And yes, even, they do. Even they indeed do. inquests. Yes. Um, are there particular types of chambers that you should apply for in this area? Should you go for a very a highly specialised clinical negligence set or is it better to go for a general common law set? Instinctively, I don't think there are actually that many highly specialised clinical negligence chambers left, actually. They were, for example, Sergeant Sin, where I did my pupillage, was purely clinical negligence and started when I was there 20 years ago, just started doing police law, and now they've branched out into lots of things. So so I don't think people will, will actually find just a specialised clinical negligence set, but I think a common law set is actually a very good idea. And lots of, so, you know, my chambers does a lot of other areas. Uh, One Crown Office Row does a lot of clinical negligence, but again, lots of other common law and public law, as does Sergeant in, as does Atta Temple. So actually, um, whatever chambers you apply to for clinical negligence now, I think, will do other areas, which which I think is a really good idea because you're not going to get into court in the first five years unless you're doing inquests in a clinical negligence case because the very low value claims are unlikely to fight to trial. That's a good point, yes. Thank you. Thanks ever so much. Thank you so much. Derek McDermott QC practices from London and Manchester. His main areas of practice are personal injury, medical malpractice and employment law, representing both claimants and defendants. The majority of his caseload involves catastrophic personal injuries such as spinal cord injury and brain injuries. We're delighted to talk to him on the Pupillage podcast about his personal injury practice. A very big welcome, Master McDermott. Thank you very much and thank you for asking me to take part. So first of all, can I ask you how you came to choose your practice area or did it choose you? Well, I think like many people at the bar, it it chose me in the sense that I started off in a chambers in Manchester doing general common law. Um, I have one case reported in the Butterworth Company Law Cases, about a Ramalpa clause. That will surprise a lot of my commercial friends. <laughs> um, but we did everything. But my pupil master, as he was at that stage, was very much um, a personal injury practitioner, one of the leading ones of the day, and my chambers did a lot of it. So from day one, I've always done quite a lot of personal injury. I did quite a lot of crime, and, you know, one of the problems, I think, these days is we've become a bit too narrow. I think that some of the best advocates have had a very broad training, and they've done the work across the sphere. So I did more and more, and I suppose about 1991-92, I had some very good criminal work on. I did some very good family work, though I realised I really couldn't do everything, and the Children Act had just come in. Uh, And... I was beginning to be instructed in some of the larger personal injury cases and I wanted to take silk. So I thought, well, let's focus on that. I wanted to remain a common lawyer, but it became a focus from there. Gerard, going back to basics, what is personal injury law? Well, first of all, I think it's actually one of the most important areas of law there is. 
I act for some of the most seriously injured people that there are. Um, it is extremely rewarding work, and it's using the law of tort to try and put something right. But as I say to each of my clients, I can't put it right. It can, however, work to get you significant compensation. So the one thing you won't have to worry about is money, or at least if there's contributory negligence or it's difficult on liability, we can at least get you the money that will help you get into an adapted house or something of that kind. I think that's so important because I think personal injury law, more maybe than any other area of the bar, has a really bad press for being ambulance chasers for those phone calls saying, have you had an accident at work? And actually, it's it's a really serious and, and important necessary area of law. I do work all over the country and I'm lucky to have um, a lot of cases of this kind. And so this week, I have advised someone in Kent. I have been to Bristol. Uh, yesterday, I was in Derby and also in Leicester. I went back home to Manchester and then I'm down here. And sometimes I use drivers to take me to see these people because it's such a long way and I can work in a car. And we had exactly that conversation. They say, what do you think about all this stuff? I said, well, yes, there are claims farmers. Uh, and actually some of the cases that crop up at the lower level are serious enough in themselves. But the work I certainly do is the most vital work for these individuals there is. And actually, if you have a broken leg, actually it's quite serious if it's you and if it's someone's fault. Uh, sometimes compensation not only makes some recompense to you, but also disinclines someone from doing it again. So if I can just take that a little bit further, people talk about health and safety uh, in a derogatory way. So this week... I've advised someone, I've advised two people who are the victims of industrial accidents. One has been left tetraplegic, which means he cannot use any of his limbs. One has had a bilateral amputation, so both his legs were amputated below the knee. Um, health and safety really matters. You've given us a little insight then into some of your clients. Do you also act for defendants? I do some work for defendants, and until probably 10 years ago, I did quite a lot of work for defendant insurance companies. Uh, the solicitors that I work for for claimants are perfectly happy for that because they will see a balanced view. Um, equally, although it might look as though defendants are always there to stop you recovering compensation, actually, in many of the cases that I work in, the insurers have a very collaborative approach and actually whichever side you are you can make a difference by the way in which you approach your task whether as insurer solicitor or barrister so your practice takes you all over the country what does it look like on a day-to-day -day level how often are you in court how often are you doing paperwork well um first i should say it takes me a little more than just all over the country uh, i do a lot of cross-border work and so uh, we talk about the importance of the work and also um, we'll talk in a moment i'm sure about the variety I do a lot of conflicts of law, I do a lot of private international law, I do a lot of European Union law. The typical week, or the typical few months, um, less of my cases go to trial than perhaps they did seven or eight years ago. Partly that's because there were a lot of changes uh, in the offing in terms of periodical payments and so on, but partly because everyone's realised that very often, if it's just a dispute about quantum or how much, the gap needn't be that large. I practice from London and Manchester. Most of my work comes through London. Increasingly, I am develop, redeveloping work in Manchester. 
Uh, I'm lucky to have a flat in the Temple, but my main home is Manchester. So I spend quite a lot of time on the Virgin West Coast Main Line, soon to be not Virgin West Coast Main Line. <laughs> and how often do you get to court? I suppose I would have said that I perhaps do two or three trials a year, but as everyone at the bar knows, a year can pass very quickly. And you may not do maybe one trial or, or none, wow. actually. I know personal injury silks who probably haven't been to trial in five years. Yeah, I do other work. I mean, in fact, I've been involved in a, dis, uh, a disability discrimination claim that, that went to trial and is going to appeal. Um, so I do some appellate work, less than I used to is the answer. In the next year, perhaps I'll do two or three trials. I do quite a lot of work in front of the masters, which I didn't used to do. I've, I'd never appeared in front of a master until I took silk. But a lot of the work that's done in case management and cost management and the interlocutory hearings is really important for the case and I think you should go along and help shape the way the case is developing. And do you think that a lot of that is by virtue of your seniority the fact that you're doing big catastrophic injuries and that those who juniors starting out doing personal injury work will actually find themselves in court more frequently doing smash and bash road traffic they, accidents? They or will and it, it's, a, it's a great training ground it's, of course, a, a hugely enjoyable time at the bar. It's where you make your professional contacts, where you make your friends. Um, we might have time a little later on to talk about the way that I use legal assistance, which is people who've got uh, the bar professional training course out of the way, but not uh, pupillage. And I am, well, my 11th has just started. And so I keep in touch with them. So in Manchester... One of my former legal assistants, who's a tenant in a chambers there, does a lot of holiday illness work, uh, defending to the to a large extent uh, travel companies against um, illness claims and the like. And she does what we would call travel work, so package travel regulations, accidents abroad, and so on. Uh, I like to keep an eye on what the younger members of my chambers are doing. They go all over the country, still doing small road traffic accidents and so on. That that will change, I think, with the way the system is developing. I think as a junior manager, you can expect to be in court quite a lot. My guess is two or three times a week yeah. uh, if you're in a chambers with a good um, mix of work and all over the country, which means you'll get to know the tra train network really well. What are the things that you love about your practice area? I did an approval hearing in the last two weeks for someone who is in a minimally conscious state. And the issue is, should he be at home with a care package or should he be in a residential institution? And the defendants, of course, said residential institution. Nothing to do, of course, with the fact that was much cheaper for them. His family wanted him home and he has some awareness and we achieved a situation where he can go home. And I came away thrilled thrilled that his father has got more peace of mind, that he's got some measure of control over how he's looked after and so on. I've acted for lots of young tetraplegic uh, individuals. Uh, and in fact, I'm going to a dinner in October with his father who's hosting a charity dinner. This is from 10 or 12 years ago. And he's become a very uh, good athlete in wheelchair rugby. Um, and it's a great to see that I had a part to play in that. It's perhaps one of the most human areas of the bar that we deal with. Um, and that's real satisfaction. Yeah, it sounds very rewarding. It is. It also sounds like it could be potentially emotionally challenging. What are the things that people thinking about this area of law ought to consider before embarking upon it? 
I think there's quite a lot of areas at the bar that are emotionally challenging and, and on the bench. I'm actually quite squeamish. I, I can't watch <laughs> operations on television, even on the pet programme. <laughs> uh, and yet I deal with people who had the most grievous injuries and I go and see people. Um, I haven't done many Burns cases, but I've seen a lot of very badly injured people. Um, I think you approach it professionally. You go in and you meet them uh, and you want to do the best for them. And I'm not suggesting you isolate yourself, you don't. I once said to someone a long time ago, probably 20 years ago, maybe as a junior, and he was um, wheelchair dependent, and I said, um, I understand how difficult it is. And he said, actually, until you've been through it, you can't understand it. And I learned a big lesson there. He was absolutely right. You can empathise, but you can never replicate what they've been through. In the days when I did a lot more defendant work, um, I think I took it on the view that I was there to do a job. But equally, you can do the job as a defendant with more compassion than some. And, you know, I like to think that when I was doing it, I was doing it in an appropriate way. Um, so like all of us, in every sort of area of work we do, um, you have to compartmentalise it a little bit. I did the shipment inquiry. I wasn't sure how that would affect me at all. Um, it was my hometown, always very close to my hometown. Uh, and I approached it in a professional way, but I hope a, a sympathetic way to the families of the victims and so on. For those listeners who think that this is an area of law that really appeals to them, what work experience would you recommend for people who are interested? If you want to come to the bar, try and do mini pupillages. We all do mini pupillages. I think people try and do too many. For my part, I think if I see three mini pupillages on a CV, it's probably enough. Um, and go to some of the big chambers that you can see specialise in this area. Uh, I know it's become more competitive. Um, and so it would be good on your CV to show an interest in it and so on. Learn about the law a little bit. There are some really interesting liability cases in personal injury law. You know, we shape the law of tort to quite a large extent. Gain as much experience as you can. Um, I'm unusual, and I don't want to divert to a different area that we're going to talk about, but I I do use legal assistants who work for me full-time, typically for one or two years, and they have the opportunity of working very close at hand with me. There are some others beginning to do it. And also, the bar and solicitors are just two branches of one profession. Try and get work experience with solicitors. Uh, if you're a BPTC grad and you haven't got pupillage yet, go and take a job as a paralegal at a good personal injury solicitors. Um, they're eager for people who want to get involved in this kind of work, and you will see all sorts of things that will teach you about it and, and help you get pupillage. Just going back to a PI practice area yeah. in particular, can we ask you the, the question that I think people are often embarrassed to inquire about in mini pupillages is about remuneration. Hmm. How much can junior barristers expect to earn with the personal injury practice? Hey, well, before I came across, I spoke to some of the juniors in my chambers and I spoke to the clerks and I have an idea. It will depend on what you're doing. If you started doing travel work at two years call, and a particular airline liked the way that you did things in terms of tripping accidents or whatever, um, I think you could probably gross up 150000 a year plus VAT. My take is, I mean, in Manchester, pupillage awards tend to be less, I would guess 30 upwards typically, whereas my London Chambers pupillage award, I think, is 60. 
uh, and that's a James Award, whichever branch of the law you're going into. Uh, if you, again, probably I suspect better in the provinces, there's a greater concentration of work available for less chambers. Um, this is not scientific, but I would expect that someone at two years call in the provinces would gross a hundred thousand a year plus VAT at least, whether there'll be quite a delay in getting them payment, as I would put that as earnings. I think at five years call, you could expect 180 to 220,000 a year. If you are getting into some of the bigger cases, if you get a leader who you really like, who really works with you well and solicitors like you, then you would do rather better than that. And at 10 years call, I would expect, um, I'd expect 150,000 grocers a minimum to 350,000 or perhaps more. Um, it is comparatively well remunerated. Yeah, that's really helpful. And of course, that will go much further if you're out of London as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's probably still quite a lot of bulk work out there where actually you can make quite extraordinary sums by doing large numbers of small cases. That's less so than it was five or six years ago. Tell us about your legal assistance then. What does the job require? Uh, well, it started really in 2008. My, my wife happens to be an expert witness uh, and she was working from home and she got weary of all the legal lever arch files around the house and some of mine as well. And she took premises quite close to our house and actually it was big enough for me to have a room. And I'd often taken uh, people for two or three weeks from my own university, University of Manchester, and Manchester University rang up and said... You've often taken people five or six weeks. We've got someone who's really, really good, just not quite getting pupillage. Would you have any vacancies? So uh, a long and short of it, I interviewed her at very short notice, and she worked alongside me. Um, I'm lucky in that I've got space to do it, and they have rooms right next to me. I involved them in every area of my practice. They help my administration. They work with me on cases. They prepare cases. Um, sometimes if I'm going to see a client for the first time, I need something that's going to tell me all about the case, but I don't need to know everything about the case. So they will typically take the three lever arch files and give me a summary of what's in it. And it's a summary that's uh, very often solicitors will do it, but it's done with an eye that they know of the sort of things I want to know. Uh, and I can build on that and I can use it if I'm going to dictate a schedule of loss. I probably might start with the detail of the injuries that they put in. They come with me to a lot of conferences. I take them to court. I don't bill for their expenses at all. I don't bill for their time. I think it makes me more efficient. Um, and part of it, undoubtedly, is the opportunity to explore, for them to explore and for me to explain to them what opportunities there are in this field. It sounds like an absolutely incredible opportunity for students and particularly for those students who are right on the cusp of getting pupillage, who've got, you know, are fully qualified and are ready for action. They... Um, I'm sure they all would have got pupillage uh, in the end. Um, my full-time legal assistants who have left me, they all went to pupillage or one went to a training contract uh, and they would have got there in any event. I'm immensely proud of them uh, and I know I had an opportunity to, to shape their career a little bit. And I bet they really hit the ground running because they knew what practice actually entailed day to day. I think, um, I think each of them probably has an advantage of two or three years in terms of getting into work. I can think of one who I would take as a junior tomorrow. And in fact, one from seven or eight years ago, I'm leading her in, in, in a, well, I've led her in two or three cases. And it's great. They know how I think. That's a real advantage to me. Yes. 
And you're not the only silk who takes legal assistance like this. Lots of people, they're called all sorts of different names. Some people call them researchers and um, legal assistants. But there are opportunities out there for... I think there are. There are more people doing it. Um, Temple Garden Chambers have taken a number on. uh, And I think people are realising what to do. I, I mean, I have the advantage that I've got extra space for them to work in. And I have the advantage that I'm pretty well resourced so can do it. Um, I'd like to see more people do it. Um, I'm very radical. I'd like to see it as the pathway to pupillage. Thank you. That's, that's very helpful. Thank you ever so much for coming to talk to us. I would say don't ignore the provinces in this field. Uh, there's some really good work out there. Thank you for listening to the Pupillage podcast with us, Beatrice Collier and Georgina Wolfe, brought to you by Middle Temple. Production support and music by Alex Doppirala. Please check out the show notes for more on our guests, links to sources of information and a glossary of terms used in each episode.